Our scripture passage comes from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through 11. It's located in your pew Bible if you want to follow along with us this morning uh, on page 980 in your pew Bible. So turn there if you'd like uh, to read. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was uh, in seminary, I distinctly remember hearing a, a professor do a lecture on the humanity of Jesus. And the professor explained that for most people, they're sort of familiar with this idea that Jesus was God and he was man. He said, but if you really start to quiz people, you're going to find that we're much more uncomfortable with his humanity. It's really weird. <laughs> it's as if you go to people and say, hey, Jesus was God. And they're like, got it, cool. But then you say to him something like, yeah, but he was also man. And they think to themselves, well, well, that can't be right. It's kind of weird, right? But see if I can illustrate how this works to you and how you react when I say things like this. Jesus went to the bathroom. Uh, Jesus stubbed his toe when he was walking through a room at night. Uh, Jesus got head colds or whatever illnesses existed during that time. Uh, when Jesus was a baby, his diaper needed changing. Now, look, I'm not trying to ruin a Christmas hymn for you here this morning, but like that whole away in the manger thing about, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Mm -mm. That's completely hogwash. Of course he cried. When Jesus' diaper was wet, he cried. But the point is, we sort of get intuitively the idea of Jesus being God, but embracing his humanity just feels a little weird. It, it almost sounds, didn't it feel just a little like a little irreverent even to mention the things that I just said? Now the question is, why would we feel that way about things that are perfectly natural to you and I's natural lives? Toe stubbing, bathroom going notwithstanding. But somehow kind of feel inappropriate when you apply those things to Jesus. I actually think there is a reason, but hold that thought for a second. Because this summer, Brian and I are trying to walk us through this study through the Apostles' Creed. And we rooted it in this question, why believing matters. And what we said is, is that the content of our belief far more shapes our identity as Christians than does the quantity or even the quality of our faith. And I would argue that there is no more curious piece of Christian theology in the creed than the suggestion that the Lord of heaven and earth, the very Son of God, was in fact fully human. It's crazy. 
And so we turn to a passage that without question is the New Testament's high watermark of depicting the theology of Jesus's humanity. And I would argue that you get no more description that's more profound, no, no implication that's more important, and no application that's more searching than this one, which frames nicely my three points this morning of we want to look at the theology, the implication, and then try to apply it in a couple of ways as well. Let's start first of all by getting the formulation down correct. Look, the reason why Christians have spent a lot of time talking about precise theological formulations is to try to keep us away from the bad thinking that leads us into bad living and bad acting. And in this case, the theology is kind of easy to say, uh, but it's kind of really hard to fully understand. But we begin simply by saying this, Jesus was full deity. Look at verse 6. It says there that Jesus was in the form of God. What that means is Jesus was of the same essence with the Father, which is the reason why he uses the word equality with God in the very next sentence. In other words, our theology intends to protect the idea that Jesus' oneness with God is certain. He is fully divine in that regard. And you can refer to last week's discussion on how the New Testament uh, sort of establishes that fact. But the other aspect of his nature is equally important, which is Jesus was fully human. Verse 8 says there that he was found in human form, or that he was found in his essence, again, as a fully human being. This is why we have the formulation that Jesus had, what we say, two distinct natures, but one inseparable person. Does that make sense? One divine and one human. In other words, Jesus' deity never overshadowed his humanity, nor did his humanity somehow spoil his deity. Jesus was and continues to be, right now, one person, two natures, as the theologians say, in hypostatic union with each other. Okay, so Christians have always insisted that this is an absolutely central doctrine, and the question you would ask is, why is this so important? Well, because both of the natures of Jesus are so vital to our salvation. Do you recognize this? Look, if Jesus was all God and no man, then we would struggle with a point of contact between us and him, wouldn't we? God, of course, is supremely other. He's, he's high. He's lifted up. He's transcendent. But if Jesus is only God, he can certainly represent God's justice to man, but he can't represent man's sin problem back to God. Which brings me to the second point, that if Jesus was all man and not God, well, now he can't even redeem us. Why? Well, because he shares our need for redemption. We're in the same boat with him and need someone to save us from ourselves. Look, if you think about it, if, if you ever function as a mediator, you really can only do that if you share some interest in both of the parties Let's imagine, since we've had so much loss this week in our church, let's imagine you have a friend who has um, unexpectedly lost a parent. They've lost a parent. Well, there's two kinds of people that can call your friend, right? The first person can empathize with your friend. That is, they can call and they can feel badly. Uh, they can talk about what they're going through. Uh, they can bring expressions of care to them, perhaps make some gestures of support. But you have a second friend who can actually sympathize with your friend. You want to know why? Because they've lost a parent too. 
And the interesting thing is, the second person almost always is just a little more powerful than the first. You know, just, just something, there's just something about talking to someone who's been through the same thing I've been through that just makes us get them better, right? Well, the point is Jesus sympathizes with his people. Jesus knows. He's experienced everything that you've experienced. Yes, Jesus stubbed his toe. Jesus got angry. Jesus got irritated. Jesus used to sweat, believe it or not. Jesus got hungry. Jesus loved children. Jesus laughed. In a phrase, Jesus knows. He knows what it's like. Look, we call this Jesus incarnation. The word simply means to take on flesh, right? And this is how Christians, this is why, the reason why Christians get as excited about Christmas as we do. Because at Jesus' birth, you see this really amazing mixture of this stunning, mind-blowing glory in the context of the most simple and lowly. In other words, when Jesus shows up at Christmas, it's everything that you would want, but it's nothing that you'd expect. Here we have a poor virgin who gets pregnant. What? And while it's happening, there's this mighty angelic choir singing music like the world has never known to a group of shepherds at the equivalent of a modern-day truck stop. There's a king who has finally come to return to save his long-forgotten people. And where can you find him? Oh, he's in a peasant's house on the side of the house where the animals are being stored, laying in a feed trough. I mean, in other words, you see the, the highest spiritual truth cloaked in the most ordinary physical realities. The idealist has met the realist. The hopeful has met the cynical. Heaven has broken into earth. And for that reason, I think that we can say, in finishing this point, is that the incarnation is in many ways one of the most emotionally satisfying doctrines in Christianity. It's totally unique, by the way, but it does so because it rings true in our souls, doesn't it? Why? Because it bridges the gap between God and man, and we understand who Jesus is because of it. Okay, so that's the theology. What about the implication of this? I realize you're at this point being like, wow. So glad I made it to church this morning for all the dry, dusty theology that the Presbyterians are after again, right? But here, hold that cynicism off for just a second and realize, I don't think there's anything more transformational than this particular idea, that Jesus was fully human but also fully divine. There's a reason why it sounds ridiculous to our present culture. It sounded ridiculous to the first believing people. We have legitimate, tangible evidence to show that Jewish people would never have seen this coming. God would never become a man. That's not on the list of possibilities. Greco-Roman culture, of course, we know, believed that the divine simply could not take on flesh without being polluted. And even now we have Eastern cultures who see the material world as if it's just an illusion, something to be escaped, and the true spirituality is to get away from material things. Well, that last one especially, you can sum up the name of what we call all of those tendencies in a single word that you just need to know. It's not a Bible word, but it's a word that's been from the very beginnings of the Bible's formation. And that word is the word Gnosticism. What in the world? Well, one of the earliest mistakes that we know Christians made in their formulation of Christian doctrine was the lure that came from the Gnostics. Well, who in the world were the Gnostics? Well, the Gnostic people were those who focused more on the world of the mind, the world of the spirit, 
The world on the non-material, that is, the body, material things. This is my universal symbol, by the way, for, for the material today. I don't know why I kept doing this in my mind, uh, but I'm going to do it the rest of the morning. But the body, right, is either evil and beside the point, or it's just annoying and potentially a, a bother. The important part of you, says the Gnostic, is your spirit. It's your thoughts. It's your feelings. That's the important part of you. Well, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the Gnostics are still with us, still one of the church's biggest enemies. And I do think that the, there's an inertia to this kind of bad thinking to where it invariably leads. In other words, you leave a brand new converted Christian by himself for long enough, he's probably going to end somewhere in Gnosticism. I think that's a demonstrable. I agree. See, somebody else agrees with me too. And, and I simply want to throw out a couple of um, examples. Let me give you two examples of why I think the Gnostics are still with us. Number one, you've heard me say this before, but I don't think there was a more persistent question that I got in my time in campus ministry from the young people that are just like y'all. Then here's my question about heaven, Les. Are we going to recognize each other in heaven? Think about that question. Are we going to know each other when we finally get there? What's the assumption that's under that? The assumption is, is that when we get to heaven, it will be a primarily non-material existence. Uh, we're going to waft around like ghosts, I guess. You know, the Bible tells me, well, what, praise God all along. Is that right? I don't know. And of course, it occurred to me very quickly, well, no wonder heaven sounds so bleh to us. I wouldn't want to do that either. Right? But here's the deal. In Jesus becoming fully human, he shows us that there is no, which is a better way to put this, there's no inherent problem with our materiality. <laughs> okay? That's not a problem. And the reason why that's impossible is because Jesus took on flesh and yet had no sin. Right? And what that means is, is his redemption of us is likewise going to be material. Why would we think that heaven would not be a material place as well, of some kind? You'll remember, I'll remind you, that as we, we were speculating when we were talking about Psalm 63 and closing out the life of David's study, that at the moment of our deaths, and I realize that some of you think about this more than others, but I do think at the moment of our deaths, we worry that on the other side of that veil, when I close my eyes and Jesus takes my spirit to be with him, that I suddenly think that's, that that's the realm of the invisible, well, it's the realm of the invisible to you now, <laughs> but who knows what eyes we have on the other side to make people fully recognizable and in some degree, I don't know, substantive of a different substance, certainly because it's spiritual. And yes, waiting for an eternal body that we'll get one day in the new heavens and new earth, but that doesn't imply lack of recognizability. I suggest to you that there'll be all kinds of that on the other side of our existence. Why? Because Jesus redeemed the body formfulness, if you will. <clears throat> so that's the first one. That's the first one, sort of tendency I see. The second reason why I think the Gnostics are with us is a little more subtle, but no less important. Let me ask you if you've ever found yourself praying something like this. God, why won't you just take this struggle from me? Like, Lord, here I am wrestling with this particular, maybe it's a sin, maybe it's a fear, maybe it's a memory of a past trauma. Have you ever found yourself praying something like, why won't you just snap your fingers and make that go away? Why won't you just remove from my mind the thought of that person who is not my spouse? Why won't you make this go away, right? What we want from God oftentimes in our struggle to become what we know he wants us to be is that magical transformation, a wave of God's magic wand. 
What we don't want oftentimes is to realize that the Bible sees what I do as essential to who I am. That is, God works through tangible means. And those tangible means are things like discipline, self-denial, working with our bodies to get to holiness. Now, look, I, I think it's fair for those of us who grew up in Presbyterian circles that we just, we love the theology, don't we? Because it helps us condescend to others at cocktail parties, right? Well, if you know the blah, 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 Gnosticism, blah, 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 blah. You can drop that at your next party. But have you ever noticed that it kind of bothers you just a little bit when all of a sudden you realize you got to do something <laughs> in the face of that theology? You know, it's one of those things where you might look at each other and say something like, look, you know, the Bible says very clearly that in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. He has broken down these dividing walls that exist between racial divides. And so, you know, we ought to think about what it looks like for us to look around the state of Mississippi and say, we, we might have some racial divide in this place. Um, how, how are we trying to bridge the gap between the African-American community and the white community in the state of Mississippi? Is there a little something inside just like, oh, here we go. Are we going to be woke like that? Is that what's happening? In other words, the minute that our theology somehow makes to take in some practice, whatever that practice might be, it just feels a little like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. That's Gnostic. Or perhaps someone looks up and says, well, you know, Sunday is one of the Ten Commandments, so we're supposed to set that day aside and make it unique and special. I'm not going to fight over what you do and do not do on Sundays, but it's kind of a big deal. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are we about to get all legalistic on us here? That's Gnostic. Can the truth make it into the way that I actually live? Gnosticism is when my faith exists purely as an abstraction. And if that's the case that it's only in my mind, then it's less what Christianity really is. And it certainly is a disbelief in the incarnation of Jesus. Because Jesus wants to redeem my life in my body. He has rights to say what I can and cannot put into my body, what I do and do not do with my hands, what words I actually do or do not say with my mouth. So yes, there's a way in which Gnosticism creeps into those. Now look, those are negative applications. One positive thing before we go to the last point. Because you can put this in a positive light. Because this, if Jesus really did enter our world, it means that you can stop thinking that your life in this world is mundane. You can get rid of those thoughts. Jesus was fully human. And if he was, it means that matter matters. <laughs> That's a great phrase. It means that what you see and what you do and what you feel and what you taste in this world is cosmically significant. It's not boring. I think Gnosticism is the surest way to make Christianity boring and irrelevant. Look, the words that you say to people on the way out of church this morning are important. The actions that you take up to prepare a meal or to feed people or to, to serve someone in some capacity, those are important. The things that you do at work tomorrow will either affirm your humanity or rob you of it. Look, think for a minute about your joys. And I wish I had more time to, to deal with C.S. Lewis' view of this. But how much time do you spend daydreaming about a vacation or craving a, a meal that you're going to enjoy at one point? Or maybe, if you're a psychopath, a workout that you're going to go have, right? <laughs> Thank you. It actually says hold for laughter in the notes here. Um, but the point is, if, if Jesus became a person, it means that even our joys are screaming something to us. 
Our joys are screaming to us that we were made for something more. We were made for that joy. It may be that because of our Gnosticism, we're sort of viewing heaven as if it's a place of pure restraint. Well, I guess I won't do that. I won't do that in heaven. What if it's the redemption of the things that you have that you enjoy here? Those things aren't bad. They're wonderful. It makes me wonder if that's the reason why we don't daydream about heaven more. Hmm. Look, a psychiatrist will immediately put you on a, um, on a, on a sort of a, a sleep and eating uh, r- regimen, will they not? Mostly because good psychiatrists will know that your bodies and your souls are intertwined. The spiritual and the physical have met together. And the reason why we know that is because it's met together in the person of Jesus. So that I don't have to live between them. Quite the contrary. We celebrate both of them in our wholeness. Okay, so as we close, let me throw out a couple of application marks. There's really just one main application uh, that comes from this particular passage, and it's this. The fact that Jesus was a man means that a Christian's life is supposed to be marked by humility. Is that what you expected? Is that where you thought that was going? Look, in context, we know that the Philippians were having trouble getting along. The reason why is because they weren't looking at their lives the way in which Jesus looked at his life. Jesus, it says, set his glory aside. He emptied himself of his best qualities. Now look, don't make the mistake that that means that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. No, that is not how the Bible, especially Philippians 2, understands this whole emptying thing. What the text says is he emptied himself by taking something on. Oh, now that's very interesting. And actually the key to humility, look what verse 3 says. Verse 3 says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Circle that word in your Bible because that's kind of important. The word conceit actually comes from a Greek word, uh, kenodoxian. It's a compound word made of two things. Keno simply means to empty. Doxa means glory. And so what Paul says is that these people's problem is that they are glory empty. (laughs) You want something glorious in life, but you're devoid of it. And because you're devoid of it, you are starved for attention. And that that being starved of attention means that you're using people and not serving them. Uh, Tim Keller used to say when he was talking about self-forgetfulness in his wonderful little book, would say that, boy, it shows up in so many ways, this desire for for self-glory. You know, first of all, it makes us incredibly driven. Driven people who are glory hungry just can't slow down because you're always comparing somebody else. And guess what? Somebody else is always doing it better. We're glory empty. And so we seek it in all these relationships. Second thing that it makes us is it makes us awfully scornful. This is where the sarcasm and the cynicism comes from. And of course, that cynicism is the first next step to destroying other people. That's exactly what I was trying to say in our sermon to General Assembly that Christianity is actually supposed to make us kind of sentimental, (laughs) kind of giddy about what we have in the gospel. Third and finally, Keller says that if you leave yourself to your your self-glorying, it's going to make you so self-conscious. You end up becoming incapable of humility because you're just trying all the time. You're always on stage. You get this great picture of this in uh, C.S. Lewis's wonderful little book, uh, um, The Screwtape Letters. Now look, when I read this little paragraph in this letter, you got to remember, this is a a senior demon, okay, who's writing letters to his understudy, okay? And so he's writing these letters to try to explain to him how to really deal with their Christian that he's trying to tempt and wreck his life. (laughs) So here's what he says. He says, I see that your patient has become humble. 
Have you drawn attention to the fact? This is hilarious. Catch him at the moment that he's really poor in spirit and smuggle this into his mind. I'm being humble. And pride will immediately appear. Listen to this. He says, abjection and self-hatred can actually do as much good if they keep the man concerned with himself. Listen to this. And self-contempt can be the starting point of a life contemptuous of all other selves because it's a life filled with gloom and cynicism and cruelty. So let your patient think of humility not as self-forgetfulness, but as a low opinion of his own talent and character. He says, look, the more that you hate yourself and call that humility, the more that creates a shame in you that you supposedly get to live in But Lewis is like, that's the very thing that's causing you to hurt other people. And until God begins to come and say, look, no, 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 that's actually not what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself or thinking little of yourself or thinking badly about yourself. It's that you've been freed to think of yourself at all. The problem with our humanity is not our humanity. The problem is that we are self-focused, self-absorbed, self-referential. It's all about me. Which is why Paul, when he's thinking through the nature of Christ, was like, Jesus, though, actually emptied himself. He kenosted himself, right? Jesus wasn't humble because he was trying so hard to be humble. That's the opposite of humility. You know what he did, though, is he poured his life out. That's how he knew he was humble. He was humble because he was self-forgetful. He moved towards other people. That was the trick. Look, think about this for a second. Jesus came and left all of the things that defined him for eternity. He left those things behind. He restrained his access to those things. Why? So that he could pursue us. And what that means is is for, for Christians to live in the light of the creed statements here means for them to inject themselves into the life of others. You're never going to get over your self-consciousness, which, by the way, is killing you and not making the people around you very happy until you start getting into the lives of others. Jesus did not just come to save an individual soul and redeem you of your bruised psychoses. Jesus came to save lives, yes, but because lives to save neighborhoods, and neighborhoods, cities, and cities means for families. That is, it is not merely a spiritual salvation. It's a physical salvation. So I think for us, the challenge of the creed this morning is is that we can never really say that we're actively following him and living out in the incarnation if we're not actively moving into the lives of other people. Yes, of course, to bring them to salvation, but also real repair, real concern, not just for their spiritual well-being, but for their physical well-being as well. We're not simply about the business of trying to get people to pray a prayer so they can get on that good old gospel ship when they die. As important as that is, it means that we befriend them. It means we sit up at night with them. It means that we, yeah, we give our money to them. We, we walk through the awkwardness of life with them. And finally, the power that you get to do those things comes from the fact how Christians have gotten to where we dwell in the fact that that's what Jesus did for me. That's what he did for me. Jesus didn't just save my soul. He met me in my materiality. By his spirit, Jesus made himself known in my physical body. He began to give me thoughts. He began to give me words. He began to show me ways. He began to bring conviction. He began to bring encouragement. 
And one of the, the places where it shows up the most, ready for this, is in the church. Other Christians. Jesus shows up in other people's lives by us coming alongside each other. And in that place, we reject Gnosticism and we welcome him as the Savior that was born. So that's the question this morning. <laughs> Do you believe that Jesus was born? Let's pray. Because, Lord Jesus, how, how, how different life would be if that was the case. Uh, we do ask for your mercy on us because we are so distracted by things. There's still these tendencies that were true 2,000 years ago. We just want detachment from the way things touch us, but it's made us miserable. So we ask for your grace that might teach us a little bit more to understand why you presented yourself the way that you did. That there is now flesh and blood on the, on the throne of the universe. Um, We'll never wrap our mind around that, but at least blow our minds with it so that, Father, we might see how you might have us to act and love and care for the people around us. Would you do that? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.